Welcome to the Creators on Comics podcast. This podcast is a conversation between two creators, dissecting the craft and technique that goes into creating comics. This episode features two cartoonists. Both guests are highly intelligent writers and incredibly skilled artists, focused on putting out politically charged, high-quality graphic novels. Rebecca Stewart is the creator of Infernal Regions, and Eric Thurman is the creator of The American Immigrant. Here's their conversation. Hello, I'm Rebecca Stewart. I'm the author of uh, my first graphic novel, uh, Infernal Regions. Okay, my name is Eric Thurman. I'm the, the author-illustrator of the two-book series, uh, The American Immigrant, Footnotes of a Generation, and Footnotes of a Revolution. And so anyway, so uh, Rebecca Stewart, it's great to, to talk with you again. So your book yeah, um, settles, thank you so much, your book settles quite a lot on some really interesting uh, real life uh, topics such as about the the disappearance of Harold Holt, uh, former Australian president who at one point went, um, uh, he had disappeared when he had gone uh, swimming out at sea. And your whole book kind of weaves this narrative of uh, of this real life uh, setting, but takes place in a very sci-fi, very like um, expressive, very psychological kind of experience of him entering the sea. Can you tell me a little bit about what what inspired you to write such a book? And can you tell me about some of the process that lead you into researching about this really outstanding, kind of really fantastical uh, story? Yeah. Oh, thank you, Eric. Um, that's some excellent questions. Um, Howard Holt is, um, he was a prime minister uh, late 60s, and he only had, had about a year in power before he disappeared. And I'm not sure how many people really think about him often these days, but I have to say, unfortunately, he is a bit of a butt of a lot of people's jokes. Um, mm -hmm. For example, when you're leaving a party suddenly, I think some people call it a French exit, we might say doing a Harold Holt or chuck a Harold Holt, which means to <laughs> just disappear suddenly. Um, with our grim sense of humour, I first learned to swim at the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool, and he's a guy who drowned, <laughs> uh, not laughing. <laughs> it's just um, typical awkward Australian humour. Uh, so he's kind of a bit of a butt of people's jokes um, and for a lot of people they don't really know what he did and I'm most certainly one of those people. Um, I don't know. So I started working on some large-scale black and white artworks, which is where I'm coming from as an illustrator. So I started wanting to make them bigger and bigger and bigger and more, more detailed. The bigger and more detailed, the better. Um, and I started designing these very gloomy images about someone who kind of was underwater yet looking up at the stars. Um, and I got a little bit carried away with that idea. And I thought, there's actually a story here. Like, who is this person? Um, and I started sort of researching Harold Holt about one of our favourite conspiracy theories in this country, which is that he disappeared and it's pretty straightforward, but they never actually found his body. And so I took myself down to Point Nepean, which is, it's currently a national park, but for many years it was Department of Defence land. And over the course of a very, very long period of time, it's actually been inhabited for about 10,000 years, starting with Indigenous Australians. This, this group was called the Bunurong people. And it was actually a very special and sacred place for them. And it was a women's birthing area and, you know, a place to find food and, and that sort of thing. But over the years, as Australia became colonised, uh, they first of all, the sealers started kidnapping the women off the, co the coast um, and then the area became inhabited by the white settlers and then it became a weird and wonderful area. And um, like we sort of discussed before, Point Nepean is really quite a small geographical area and I, I went for a hike around there. It's only about three hours to cover most of it. Uh, and a lot of it's actually blocked off because there's unexploded um, bombs everywhere sitting in the ground. <laughs> and I just took myself off for a little weekend just because I wanted to check out the beach where he disappeared, Cheviot Beach, and you can't actually get down there. Um, the cliffs are eroded and um, one day I hope to collar a, a park ranger and get down there. And I had a look and it's it's a really, really dangerous beach. You can stand up and it's, there's tides going everywhere, there's rocks everywhere, 
even looking at it very superficially from the top of the cliff, it's like, how on earth did he lose his life being such a good swimmer? So it kind of started from there and I got very swept away with the story of Point Nepean, um, all the world wars that had been, you know, nothing was actually fought there, but they did a lot of training manoeuvres there. And then with the story of Harold Holt and now as, you know, kind of a special place again and acknowledging again that it has a really ancient history in Australia. So that's that's kind of where it's a long answer to a short question. That's kind of where I got started with Infernal Regions. Um, yeah. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Um, also, in addition to that, you talked about how this beach was um, in, previously during World War One and World War Two. It was at the site of a lot of uh, military training and such. And I see that yeah. a lot of this this imagery has kind of permitted into some of the structures that that exist on the the sea floor within your work. Can you talk a little bit about that, such as like the factories that were developed there and, and such? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just translated what I saw on the shore to what was underground. And I thought, well, we never found um, Harold Holt's body, but what if he's still down there? What if he's still breathing and underwater? And he was someone who was obsessed with the undersea. He loved the environment. And for me, just to sideways dart into a political bent, He's from uh, one of our two major parties in Australia called the Liberal National Party. And I know for a lot of Americans, uh, small L liberal, it tends to more the left wing. But in Australia, capital L liberal refers to more, a more conservative party. Um, so I don't associate the conservative party with extremely good things <laughs> from my background. And we lived for a long period of Liberal National Party leadership until quite recently. Um, and I became very, very, very disaffected with the leadership in this country, um, understanding of the environment. Uh, I, I, I sort of associate the Conservative Party with absolute environmental destruction. And this is kind of something I wanted to bring across is where, where all of us kind of are kind of responsible for polluting the oceans. The oceans belong to everybody um, and everything we chuck out um, for example, the Great Pacific Gyre, which is the huge patch of plastic just bobbing around in the ocean, and every ocean has one of these gyres now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of horrifying to think, well, maybe some plastic I've chucked out is in there. And it led me to sort of kind of think about, you know, well, who's who's affected by this? Like everybody. And we don't have the leadership currently to deal with it. Not in Australia, and I'm not really sure about any country these days right exactly yeah. it's it is but, definitely yeah. a, a good crisis the catastrophe that i experienced that we all experience all around the world i know yeah. some of my work like talking about the flooding that exists in my hometown the philippines most people yeah. are, are wading through water that are up to like two to three feet up to their waist and everything and people just live on the second floor of their buildings because it's impossible to actually you know to, yeah. to, to have any um any way to stop about the the rising sea level that's what I loved about your book too is that the flooding, particularly the flooding in the Philippines, and I know you touch on it in terms of the mm. education system in all the other countries you've travelled to, but the Filipino one where it's literally just a background to every conversation, the rain is constantly coming down, you're sitting in a bar having a conversation about something completely different and yet you've got water up to your knees. You're just having a drink at a bar and you're just sloshing okay. around or you're walking down the street and saying goodbye to somebody in a completely flooded environment that, as you said, it's actually quite dangerous to do that. Exactly so. And it's something I really yeah. loved about your, your work too, that um, like even though a lot of this, um, a lot of this history is kind of based on this idea of Harold Holt uh, and that history of it's disappearing, like it has like so much of your work is inter, uh, interwoven with this current uh, climate crisis. Like there was a... Yeah part of, of what you described, um, and maybe this is just my own kind of interpretation, but the light illuminating from the factory like structures at the, the bottom of the ocean. Mm. And, you know, this pure kind of white reminds me of like the, for example, the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, or when yeah. you have, have the main character and he is able to um, see them, he sees all these uh, thermal ducts as not as not something of wonder, but as something to exploit. Like I can make a lot of profit from this. And it reminds me of a lot of uh, larger businesses around the world that take a look at the, the melting of the polar ice caps as something that's beneficial because now there's 
more opportunity to exploit different oil uh, reserves in this area or to open up new fishing lines or areas for trade. Was there any intention by some of the designs that you were making in your book that alluded to some of these current crises? I will say in a in a general sense that the, the mindset of I'd call them kind of the ruling political class in I would say the mm-hmm. career politicians um, that they see everything as a profit and as an opportunity. So there doesn't seem to be much concept of um, conserving parts of the globe just just because it's good to conserve. It has to be even if it's a national park. It's something that's a good place for people to go and visit and pay to go in and you can have these experiences and even something as benign as a national park, which is a whole system that I believe it started in the States a few hundred years ago, Mm -hmm. um, even something like that is an opportunity. And as someone who's been around long enough to have been to the Great Barrier Reef many times as a child to right now, it's not really a location you necessarily want to go and see. There's... There's regular bleaching events, so it's not constant. And a lot of it depends on what season, La Nina and so on. And then there's spawning season where the corals kind of spawn and go out into the ocean, that sort of thing. But it's very affecting to me to think of my friends' kids and my nieces, for example, and all their friends. It's not really a lovely place where you can go and frolic and have a good time and enjoy the the reef for what it is it's kind of like well which reef can we go and visit these days which reef is still alive and i right. it blows me away that that's actually in the span of my lifetime right. um so there was there was some in, images in the infernal regions where i specifically referred to the bleaching of the corals and it, it sounds ridiculous us wringing our hands over here but like we were saying I, I, we have no power in this situation um there's there's a lot of you know mining uh, going on around those parts of Queensland, which are just all sorts of mining projects. They're still getting approved to this day, even though we've had a change of government fairly recently, you know. And, and so a lot of that, those visuals come from that place of anger, which is and not even a hippie thing, like, you know, nature alone is beautiful, we should love it. It's it's nature is, is there for it all of us. It belongs to all of us, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of how I see it. Right. And actually, if I, I can kind of continue on with this, uh, this theme of like the average person doesn't have power, like your your work really kind of like grapples with this theme where uh, once the, the main character emerges into the bottom of the ocean um, in a place that he doesn't have power like he did on the surface, he doesn't have his mm-hmm. ability and power and position, he doesn't have his wealth and such, and he is forced to interact with um, the what he doesn't even consider people who live at the the bottom of the ocean, who also don't have power in this situation. One of them being um, the the woman under the sea. Um, Yeah. It's under, I know it's kind of difficult in a a podcast as such, but do you want to describe a little bit about the the woman that I'm referring to and what type of character that she is in the story? Yeah, so again, she's nameless because it's kind of a, a decision on my behalf. Um, so she's one of the, we just call them the undersea fish people. They're like fish undersea sentient beings. They don't really, <laughs> the names will come later, Eric. <laughs> um, so she's a, a tall, proud woman with a kind of tube for a head and constantly coiling curls around her head. And she's kind of put together with bits of old armour and shells and she's half turning into a fish herself, like everyone who gets trapped down there, but she is the outcast woman. So she's been outcast by this society for telling them the truth, which is you guys are drowning and you need help. So they've created this society built on all our rubbish and gunk that comes from above and they think it's a war, whereas we as human beings just think the, you know, the ocean is just a place for everything to wash up in. It doesn't really matter. It'll take care of itself because we can't really see most of what goes on under the ocean. Uh, whereas she's this kind of truth-telling character, which hopefully in the second and third book, all that will become revealed. You'll learn a lot more about her background. But in my mind at the moment, she's kind of a, uh, from a Greek mythology perspective, like a pharmakos, which is an outcast woman that has a very specific role, which she's, she's absolutely despised and reviled and cast out from society. And at the same time, absolutely revered and regarded as kind of a goddess. So I'm going to push that a bit more. But in terms of part one of this series, she's just there saying, we all need help. We need your help. 
you have power and he's saying we're not down here i don't that's excellent and actually kind of continuing on with this like a lot of them like i said it's, it's difficult on a podcast to describe this but because your book is very very visual um and very surreal you use a lot of different type of mark making throughout your your book whether it be through mm. just pen and ink whether it be through dry brush whether it be like some scraping whether it be through digital um layers and such can you tell me about like what decisions were made for any particular type of marks that were made throughout the the story if you had any particular themes or any representational for this um I think I've always loved black and white art and I think we're both coming from the same place uh, it's very mm -hmm. tempting to say hand-drawn art but obviously digital art is hand-drawn as well but mm -hmm. uh, let's call it traditional art for the sake of today right. <laughs> um of I guess my upbringing was very much around hand-drawn comics, um, hand-drawn art, British illustrators of kind of the 30s and beyond. It's kind of called the golden age of illustration, which I'm sure some people would disagree with that. But <laughs> when prior to photography becoming really mainstream in publications, everyone read magazines or looked at ads on the wall and that sort of thing, illustration was very much held up as, you know, a, a really important skill and you could earn a lot of money back then um, because you weren't a photographer and, and that sort of thing. So my all my references are, are pretty old and we've probably got similar comic references like Tintin, you know, Eje and Asterix exactly. and so on, like, like so many yeah. comic creators do because they're amazing. Um, but for me in particular, I'm always trying to let go a bit of my artwork and make it a bit rougher and looser, yet with underlying values of really good, you know, anatomy or perspective or whatever it is. Um, so I'm, I'm always tend to make it very kind of tight and controlled. And when I look at artists like Alberto Breccia, for example, who is an Argentinian artist um, of the 60s, who, um, and I'm sure as you're now in Chile, you know, there's lots of parallels with what he was living through with what Absolutely. you're going through today. Um, and he was just an incredible artist to use a lot of experimental techniques to me kind of painting on film and scratching and splattering things around and using different stamps. Like I don't even know a lot of it. I know he used razor blades and just dip that in ink and just mm -hmm. draw a, a, a picture of a fact, like a portrait, just with razor blades all using straight lines. And it's like the best portrait of a human face you've ever seen. Um, and I don't have much information about him. I know Fantagraphics, I've got the two Fantagraphics books of, of his artwork, The Eternaut and um, Mort Cinder, and I just had those in front of me not to necessarily copy but to say what would Alberto do now? He would probably loosen this up. He would probably take it to somewhere completely different and instead of physically drawing snowflakes in the Eternaut, for example, which is about a kind of alien invasion where these big flakes come down and poison humanity, he's kind of used these weird white stamps on what looks like paint on acetate. Honestly, I don't really know, Eric. <laughs> it's, uh -huh. All the references about him are in Spanish. So, you know, yeah. like we talked about, I've, I've been to Chile in the, the past Mm -hmm. Didn't know about this guy back then. I'm like, and enter Argentina. My God, the the, ref, the the research I would have done <laughs> if I was there now. Right. But unfortunately discovered him fairly recently and I'm like, oh, he's absolutely the best for me. And that's kind of where I'm coming from is what's a really creative way other than just using straight lines and pen yeah. and ink? What's a really creative kind of response to it? And that's, I don't know if I quite got there with this comic, but I'm always trying to say, come on, push it a bit more like try a bit harder think of a really creative response to just doing hundreds and thousands of lines on this massive piece of paper that's just going to drive you mad in the end right. probably to look at but it's uh, it, it's so far from comics really you know, comics is a, in my mind a bit more direct than that and, and I wanted this to be a beautiful yeah. work of art like a, an art yeah. book in the form of a comic but I also don't want to kill myself and never you know <laughs> never finish, finish right. anything destroy my hands oh, and my back life, and my right. neck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love talking to you about it too because I know you've you've done this extravaganza. Like oh. I've read 330 pages now and it's all all hand done with beautiful backgrounds and and you can you can see that it, it you know, again hand done, sorry, it's the wrong terminology. 
you can you can see this done on paper. You, you just yeah. it, it's got you that can hold it. It's physical. Feel. Yeah, you've got that visceral feel, and and that's what I want to do with my artwork. Is not necessarily have these grand environmental statements. It's kind of up to the reader mm. if they want to get into that or not. But I want to get that right. oppressive feeling of being underwater and having these, you know, billions of liters of water pressing upon you, and somehow yeah. you can still breathe and exist under there. Like I, I just want that creepy undersea feeling. <laughs> yeah, that's I've definitely what I'm got going that. For. Yeah, I loved how that particular, I mean, like, it's not really necessarily a color palette, but like, as far as the, the tone shifts and everything, as far as like something that's very structured, something that has like more traditional representational drawings towards the surface, very, very light um, tones and textures. And as you submerge lower, everything get darker, everything gets warped. And, you know, it's a really interesting way to observe, you know, the transition between these literal two, war, or two worlds at um, war. I'm glad that came across. I wanted to, because I love psychedelic art as well. So I wanted to become more psychedelic and more textured and more freaky the further along he got. And mm. at the start, he's just wearing a plain black wetsuit when he's above mm -hmm. the water. But when he gets further down, the wetsuit kind of disintegrates a little bit and he gets these fishy bits on him and webbed hands and feet and all that sort of stuff. Right. So I wanted to, people to feel like, what would it be like if you started turning into an underwater person and could breathe under I never fully explain it of course you're just going to have to leave that to your own imagination yeah absolutely <laughs> and actually kind of continuing on with this theme so like at the at the end of the the first book and everything something pivotal happens to the main character can you uh lead on into what you expect to cover within the second and third books within the series yeah absolutely so I want to have him absolutely he thinks because he's got so much power in his old life that he can easily find his way out of it. He just has to find his way to the surface. And the end of the book is basically saying that is off the cards, buddy. You're completely on your own. You have no political advisors. You have no salary. You have no sway over the people down under the water. So I've made it very clear that he's having an absolute nightmare and I didn't want people to be really sure if he's literally just, if he's dead or if he's, imagine the entire thing and it's a psychedelic dream sequence or if he's actually mm. under there and he's just plonked on the surface on the ground somewhere and going well what do I do next so I wanted to leave it a very hopeless <laughs> like a real downer <laughs> great way to finish a book um, and then the second book will get more into the the woman's story and how she she comes there and she was orig originally an old woman living up on the cliffside in the original many as you know you just write out your books a hundred times and do different sorts of plots and this is a, a very weird thing that I don't know it, it's one of those things that happened in my trip to Point in the Pea and I don't know if I imagined it mm -hmm. I don't know if it's something else I did not take a photo and I did draw a picture <laughs> so it could be one of my weird fanciful things that I often go off around on but you do these little hikes through the bush as long as you keep to the bush you're not going to step on any unexploded mine areas and there's all these strange yeah <laughs> there's all these strange bunkers everywhere so there's the main bunkers right out on the tip of Point Nepean which uh, Port Phillip Bay is a, it's a massive flat bay and it faces um, opposite uh, Queen's Cliff so you can kind of vaguely see the landmass across the way and you can see the two bits of water coming together and there's all these gun turrets and fabulous um, you know subterranean uh, fortresses and cool cool thing to just allowed to run about there's rock wallabies everywhere there's wildlife all over hopping all over the place and then you walk mm -hmm. down from there and one side it's crazy weather and just pounding surf and rocks and on the other side it's a lovely flat bay with these semi-tropical looking areas and I found this lonely little kind of bunker there and as I was walking along the path I, I reckon I saw a massive footprint like a huge dog like about as big as a dinner plate and just one or two of these. And I'm like, someone's got a massive dog here. What if it's some mystical woman <laughs> who lives here on her own and she's got this kind of ghost dog? That's so cool. Anyway, <laughs> and then I walked away going, I totally dreamt that whole thing up. Who, who knows? But anyway, in my memory, a massive footprint of something, no wallaby footprint, a great huge footprint. So I wanted her to be up on the cliff and them to pass so once Harold Holt or the character that represents Harold Holt pass through the water and her to go back up to the surface that that may happen down the track 
so she's she's definitely the truth teller of the like the Cassandra that tells the truth but is fated for no one to ever believe her or take her seriously. Um, so she will be that kind of character. And then the third book, they'll come together and see see what he can do to see if he can actually completely strip away where he's come from. You know, all the power stripped away. Does he have it in him to become a rational human being and use his power for good, for a change? <laughs> and I think that's a fantasy of all of us to take a politician or a person <laughs> power and go, you've got nothing. Who are you? Who exactly? Mm. What are you made of? Because I don't believe anything really a lot of these people say anymore. So towards the end, we want them to come together and try and work on this uh, environmental problem of power and politics. Really fascinating story on this. Uh, Rebecca, yeah. so you've had a really interesting kind of like history with the publication of this and going through the whole process yeah. of trying to find a, a, a decent printer for it and trying to find like the exact size that you wanted to, uh, to print at. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Yeah, so I'll see, see how, how well I can answer this. Okay, <laughs> so for starters, I didn't really attempt to get it published. I, I, I sort of applied to one publisher. A whole bunch of grants, I had a whole lot of, you know, no's or whatever. So I mm -hmm. said, you know what, it's it's a kind of book that I can't see many people wanting to publish anyway. I'm going to do it myself and just figure out, you know, not even the comics industry, just I like to figure out how these things work. Like how do you put a book together? How do you run a crowdfunding campaign? How, how do you do a launch? How, how does all that stuff kind of work? And um, I was kind of given the wrong advice by someone online saying oh, digital printing's great, any size, any length, do do whatever you feel, <laughs> do whatever you feel like. And I said, great, I want a big fat art book in the form of a comic and I want huge pages, um, like a classic 1970s Tintin. That's, that's what I had in my mind. And because I can't measure to save my own life, it's actually much bigger than a classic Tintin. Uh, but that's fine because more artwork is is better. So I was working along those lines and designed all my pages around that. Um, and then much, much later when it came time to pre-press, and I'm very fortunate to have my sister Emma, who's a very experienced graphic designer, said, I'll do your pre-press. Um, no, no problem. And so she offered to help me, but as we talked about, um, there are a few issues with that. Uh, I use Affinity and she uses Photoshop and when it comes to pre-press, it's not all that compatible. So we had to try and figure it out between the two of us. <laughs> uh, but she did and, um, of course, having a huge size leads to all sorts of problems with postage size and weight and that sort of thing. So I'll, I'm just going to chalk that up to did not know. Um, ended up great. I, I personally was really happy with the end result. Um, so it, it's not such a bummer for me, but I completely understand if people look at it and go, wow, that is a, that's a hefty postage. Uh, not, not so interested. And obviously I'm locked into that size as well for parts two and three. Well, I say obviously, I presume that I am. So that, that was quite a whole thing. And then there was uh, crowdfunding after that and launching, which all happened in the same month. And Yes, uh, I would not recommend that for any comics creator to do that in such a condensed period of time. But uh, overall, uh, it was a project for me to figure out how comics work and what kind of comic I would make, like to make. And I was really happy with it in the end. Perfect, yeah. perfect. Excellent. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you some things about your comic, Eric, The American yeah. Immigrant. And first of all, I'd like to start with a song of praise to your method of storytelling which is quite a personal memoir uh, with a lot of journalistic intent, uh, discovery of how education works in a lot of, uh, let's say, non-Western countries or non-English non speaking countries. Um, and also just a great travelogue as well. And you said initially to me, I'm going to send you the, the full 330 pages. I was like, here we go. And it is quite wordy, but it's so compelling and after maybe three or four pages, I was quite wrapped up in it. And you just start with a, a phone conversation. You're waiting in the airport and you're still a young man and just wanting to pay off your student loans, uh, need to go and work overseas for a while. What am I doing here? 
and all that sort of thing. So I, I really wanted to say just how much I loved your storytelling and like insidious is not the right word. It just, it kind of wraps around you and involves you because it's not pure journalism and it's not pure memoir either. It's, it's you know, educational and inspiring and very intriguing and also quite personal as well. So, yeah, I just wanted to say um, I'm really happy to have met you because it's, uh, yeah, if it wasn't for... Uh, this podcast we would not have made each other so that's great yeah <laughs> right, right and thank you so much for the kind words on that like for the the main idea for this entire work is like the overall premise is it's a story about somebody who graduates uh from a public university in the U.S. in this case my my memoir so myself um who goes abroad to pay off the 25,000 uh U.S. dollars in student loan debt and essentially it, it's it's trying to describe this you know, the entire millennial and uh, Gen Z generation that has been kind of subject to this this uh, student loan debt, um, uh, you know, and as far as like how it limits our ability to to work, where to live, and such it impacts our, our life in such a like horrible way. We're not allowed to buy, you know, we're not able to buy property. Many of us mm. are foregoing kids just because it's not financially sustainable to do it. And there's a growing number of people that have to leave their country and go abroad in order to pay off those debts. So the the major theme of the story is to kind of capture this feeling of not only are people from the US are leaving their country to do this, but honestly follows the storyline of so many people throughout. And I uh, and I write about the, the Philippines, South Korea, and Chile as the three countries I lived in. But like, this is a global phenomenon that our entire generation that is struggling through through a neoliberal economics that have been pushed um you know ever since the time of Reagan and it's um and it's fallout since that time. Absolutely. And it starts as a very simple desire to I need to work overseas and raise the cash. And it's it's so so much more than that, I have to say. And it, it talks about your discovery of the Filipino education system and then to the South Korean one, which I had hints of in say the movie Parasite, uh, which I didn't really know, but once I read your book discussing how their education system works, uh, it really sort of hammered at home. Did you want to talk a bit more about the differences in the three countries of education system compared to what you grew up with? Yeah, sure. So we'll start from the Filipino education system. So when I went to the Philippines, it was to, to spend some time and stay with my then girlfriend. And I, at the time, I was volunteering at a very rural uh, high school um, mm -hmm. in just maybe about like four hours north of Manila, the capital of the Philippines. And um, it was starting a very like in kind of like a huge shift in educational policy at the time. They were the Filipino education system was trans um, had was starting to implement a system called the K through twelve system, in which uh, previously before. Uh, students of the Filipino education system would uh, finish when they were 16 years old or in the international 10th grade. Uh, and then they would study and usually finish a university at 20 years old. Well, what was happening was that when Filipino students wanted to study abroad, um, they would often have to take two extra years to fulfill the, the requirement for high school to, right. to be able to study universities and other places. And yeah. so in theory, like the system is, you know, is incredible in that like it's two you know two more years of free public edu uh, uh, education but what happened during the time of the, that I was writing and drawing about the book was that um, the the way that this program was rolled out was very disorganized intentionally um, one of the the major uh, the idea of the of the K through 12 uh, program is that they would have four different sections in the, the public school um, system and that you can kind of major in whether like traditional education, whether the, the arts and sciences, whether in sports or whether in like construction or, or this type of like uh, engineering kind of like two years specialty for it. And they're and very if, young people. Uh, they're yeah. very young people making those decisions. Yeah, exactly. Like so it's like, yeah. yeah so the the problem uh, with the system is that they said that if you're if you cannot uh, go to the program that you want to in your public school, you are able to get a school voucher and study at a charter school. And so what happened was then they they intentionally did not fund these public schools uh, accurately. And what happened was um, 
they're like, well, okay, all these students have to now um, uh, take school vouchers, which heavily benefits the private education industry. It's honestly a lot of the same kind of like mechanism that's happening in the U.S., uh, for example, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, um, the entire public school sy uh, system was converted into charter schools. Well, this was a process of transforming a lot of uh, primary uh, public education in the Philippines into the charter schools. And so mm -hmm. there was this whole process. And what happened was during this first year of implementation, about a million Filipino uh, students uh, dropped out of school because um, wow. they're not able to like get on a jeepney, like the like a, a small little uh, bus and travel two hours, you know, to study like in another like town or province. And so, so they just dropped out anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So th there's this. And then honestly, that model of charter school system, we're seeing this replicated in, in countries like um, the U.S. and Chile and such. And mm -hmm. um, to move on to South Korean education, their system is deeply highly uh, privatized. So most students do attend public schools um, and private schools in the primary and secondary education system is not very vast. But the, the reason why I say it's very privatized is that um, uh, oftentimes parents will send their kids to, to private, uh, private academies called hogwans. And so they'll usually um, at three o'clock, they'll go and study at a hogwan uh, until dinner time. And then they'll go and study once at uh, another place, sometimes two academies. And you have children that are like five years old that are studying until like midnight, one o'clock every single day Absolutely. of the week. Absolutely crazy, and everyone's asleep in your classes. Yeah, it's and I I draw yeah. that constantly. All my public school classes I'm teaching, like all the all the students are like they're conked out, they're out. So, yeah. so just little kids again, like that's absolutely yeah. mad. And then you talk uh, later in that book about how President Obama made this speech right. about it and got it completely the wrong way around to what you had experienced, which I found really that, interesting. Exactly, and that kind of like. Um, strings along this this line of uh, neoliberalism in education, this idea of taking public resources and and handing it off to the private uh, assets. And mm. Obama had made what a speech. What do you get? Yeah. yeah, I think when was it? it? Was during his first year of presidency. Obama gave a speech about um, how the U.S. should model their education after the South Korean education system. And how it was a system that, like, well, look, they're the sec number two in the world for uh, on test scores, and they respect their teachers so much. I mean, when we look at the labor side, South Korea does not respect <laughs> their teachers quite well <laughs> and overworks them and underpays them. But yeah. um, but the the thing is that like Obama was pointing to a very like very specific thing about test scores, uh, not necessarily about lifelong learning outcomes or about the the health and well-being of students. It was a very highly privatized system that benefited companies that were engaged in the education system. So mm. that's, and a lot of that, I that's part of why I made the conclusion to come to Chile. Like, obviously, I modeling, what, you know, like, ideally, like, I'm, I, I'm an activist and I'm an advocate for, a strong advocate for public education. And yes. I, I don't think that um, pointing to a, a education system like Korea is exactly a way how to transform public education to be more inclusive. <laughs> yeah. So I came to Chile in my third, uh, in my second book about uh, footnotes in a, of a revolution to study about different social uh, movements that were led by students who fought against like these charter schools here in Chile in this laboratory neoliberalism. Yeah. Do you want to talk Sorry, that... a bit more about that? Yeah, no, that, that was good. I just want to know a bit more about the Chilean end of it, which is the book you're currently working on. Yeah. So, I mean, so a lot of the tone for the first two books, the Philippines and South Korea, do focus on a, a more kind of like coming of age story about like being enchantized about the, the world, while also kind of like just struggling as a millennial just to get um, their first jobs, you know, just trying to to find a place to land on their feet. The, the second book that I focus on in Chile, uh, Footnotes of a Revolution, is more, definitely has a much more like serious journalistic tone, where it's investigating the different um, so, student social movements from 2006, which was nicknamed the, the Penguin Revolution, which saw yep. 
uh, high schools throughout the country uh, placed or occupied. I'm trying to think of the term in English to occupy various different uh, high schools and to shut them down. And then later on in 2011, 12, and 13, there was another very monumental student um, uh, manifestation that that closed schools and universities throughout the country for for multiple years yep. in order to to fight for free education for all. So I mm -hmm. saw, hey, students were able to to accomplish this in Chile in a very like um, usually in Latin America, Chile is kind of seen like the and I apologize for Chilean friends for this, but it's kind of seen as the little U.S. of Latin America, as mm -hmm. is the country that is kind of the laboratory for the. Margaret Thatcher, Reagan style of um, uh, neoliberalism. Uh, oh, and, I didn't that. Hmm. and so like the, their entire education system and how their, their country is based on, it's like based on the rights for corporations to participate in various sectors of the economy. Like there's hmm. like there, there's even in the former um, uh, Pinochet era constitution, like corporations had the right to water. And that water could be privatized, which is something that you don't really see anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's why it was very inspiring for me to come to Chile to research about these movements. It's like, how is a country like in the heart of this type of privatization? How were they able to fight back on this and accomplish so much change? Yeah, and how do they do it? And that's also why you went to Hong Kong to interview mm -hmm. people on the streets, which sort of exactly. seemed a segue between the South Korea um, the two different schools you worked at in South Korea. So it, were you yeah. just on a journalistic trip there? Were you um, on assignment with someone or how how would you describe that? So for Hong Kong, I actually, yeah, in the context of this, I was just finishing working at a, um, at a U.S. owned, um, or I, I should say an orphanage with its headquarters based in the, the, the U.S., uh, mm -hmm. I just left that job because of um, there. There was a lot of abuse that was happening to our students at that point, and the the Seoul Metropolitan Office of Education had to step in to close the particular school and to move students into public schools within the area. Yeah. During that time, um, uh, I was um, I was you know finding different work and. Uh, Ellery My Harris from The Nib, uh, a publication online that does a lot of different nonfiction comics and investigative journalism, uh, mm -hmm. hired me to go to Hong Kong to write about the Umbrella Revolution of 2014. Uh, during that time, students were fighting uh, for uh, autonomy from mainland China, um, mm -hmm. and which has been a long, long period of process of activists, you know, challenging the court system and and constantly getting arrested. And, and we've seen as years play out how China has now, now has considerable control over the, the local Hong Kong government. And you don't, so, hear, well, I certainly don't hear much about it in the media anymore. There was that whole initial yeah. uprising, which I think was pre-pandemic. And then now um, in terms of Australia, we don't hear many updates about what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. I mean, that kind of alludes to a lot of the the protests all around the world. Like 2019, 2020 was like a year of fire, yeah. where yeah. so many people were protesting all around the government, you know, all around the world, right before the pandemic. You wanted to say you you said you wanted to go to the U.S. for the Black Lives Matter protest. Is that right? Was that around that same yeah. time? It was around that time too. I yeah. The, how do I say? I that was kind of a complicated uh, part of my life because. Um, like in 2019, or well, I should say in 2018, we had the the Latin American uh, feminist wave that mm -hmm. uh, fought for the the legalization of abortion all throughout Latin America, and some countries yeah. have since then legalized abortion. Um, you know, within the the continent, which is kind of like a huge uh, contrast to what we see like in North America these days, particularly the U.S. that are now regressing in abortion rights. Um, yeah. And in 2019, we had something called the Estallido Social. This is, the, I guess in English, you would call this a social outbreak, but it was a series of protests that were based on a metro uh, tax hike of 30 pesos, which is maybe about 10 US cents. Um, mm. And about the, how do I say, the, the response from the, the conservative Pineda government against students 
who are protesting the, these metro hikes at the time. And I, I will also put in the context too, Chile was not the only country that was experiencing this type of um, conflict from their, their government who decided to deploy military to the streets in order to suppress protests. But yeah. at the same time too, uh, Peru, Bolivia, Colombia, and um, various in Brazil, various countries in Latin America within a span of about a, a month you know, had these governments coordinate to to try to suppress different protests. And we saw in the case of Bolivia, which had the the upheaval of, um, I'm losing his name, is the, the president of Bolivia. Um, he was ousted in a coup and uh, replaced with a very, like, U.S.-friendly leader. So, yeah. um, and Black Lives Matter kind of continued on shortly after uh, that. And I, I wanted to go to the U.S. to research about this at a very like critical moment in U.S. history. And it's um, unfortunately, how do I say, I, I live on a, a uh, Latin American teacher's income. Uh, I don't exactly have the, the income to go to the U.S. and put myself up for a hotel for two or three weeks. And yeah. this was during the beginning of the pandemic where it was very difficult to convince friends, like, can I stay at your place? You know, mm. <laughs> do you have an extra room that I can stay in and everything? And I can understand That's why it's like so reason- important. That's why it's so important you do this comic and get it out there, Eric. Like this is yeah. what you can do. If you can't be there, then uh, the people need to read this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I know I, yeah. I go on quite a lot about different historical events. I haven't talked too much about the story, but like I do think yeah. a lot of these uh, I the book at its core is to have conversations about these social events that are happening yeah. within the world for the past decade. Yeah, and it did it. It obviously didn't start as that. Like I'm wondering when you started actually writing and drawing it. Like how soon after the events is? Is it very fresh when it happens and you get it straight down, or are you planning a long time in advance and then, you know, retrospectively looking at it and thinking about it that way? Because I, I know you you showed me you do two pages at a time or yeah. a spread at the time on on a light box. So I'm wondering, yeah. you know, what what your process is in terms of what's actually happening to you. So typically, so I started this book in the research for this in 2011. This was the year that I graduated from university in the U.S. Yeah, from yeah. Uh, from art school and moved to the Philippines. And yeah. so all throughout this time, I'm journaling about the, the events that happened. I'm writing the scripts as best I can generally as it happens. Mm-hmm. And so um, there... How do I say? Because like writing, because this is from 2011, we're in, in 2023. I'm one year um, uh, from completing the last book in the series, which is in total is probably going to be close to about 550 to 600 pages. Awesome. Um, <laughs> it's, it's good though. It's, it's a, a marathon. It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's what's necessary. I, I don't think it's too long at all. Like it, yeah. it just scuds along. You read it really quickly in a good way. So, so it's, yeah. So how do I say, I, so I think like a lot of the writing kind of change, my voice changes as that happens, because like, obviously the type of person that we are in our our mid twenties is very different from our our mid thirties, moving on to our mid forties. And so a lot of my earlier writing kind of captures that kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm amazed at wonder about like, oh, this is the interesting things that these people eat. Like, oh, okay. Well, I like this, you know, or like, oh, this is, this is how people use transportation here. Oh, this is complicated. It's difficult, but like we can do. Um, yeah. And then it kind of moves on to like, yeah, then I start um, uh, getting into uh, graphic non nonfiction and, and comics journalism. And then yeah. I start to kind of like do more reading about how do I become a journalist? And then there's a lot of change in tone and how I approach different things. Like now I'm not thinking of like, oh, this is a, a very cool like decoration here, or this is something now I'm approaching as a journalist. And then even in, yeah. in Chile too, where a lot of my politics have been kind of pushed and changed when, and also confronting a lot of trauma in the past. Um, one kind of uh, major theme in the, the Chile book is, um, um, I, usually with friends, I don't talk about this too much, but there's um, shortly after high school, I growing up, I didn't have exactly the best kind of like way to be raised. And so I didn't really have a home or a job after high school. And so I had joined the military in 2004, um, and this was just you know one year after the invasion of Iraq, just mm. so that I can have a roof over my head wow. and just like you know, and I think a lot of young people at that time kind of were in that same kind of situation. So, 
um yeah. this, this idea or theme of like you know take a life in order to save yours mm. so um but I during my training I decided like this this is not a good place for me I don't you know I don't want to participate in this imperialistic war and so I I decided like I was not going to participate in it and I there was a long process about me trying to get out of the military that I cover in the Chile book um that involved me forced to do labor seven days a week uh 17 hours a day um and I, I was held for almost a year doing this type of labor of cutting grass along the freeway, um, yeah. doing deliveries for a print shop and essentially like essentially doing what's similar to prison labor for a mm-hmm. period of a year in order to leave the military and wow. going and researching here in Chile. Like I, I am covering a lot of the militarized police in Chile because usually uh, a lot of the police are, I mean, they're, <laughs> they're very armored, <laughs> I should say. Um, and kind of like I'm forced to reconfront a lot of the trauma that I experienced in the U.S. military in order uh-huh. to do my journalism work. So that kind of parallel of of how do I say uh, of that experience from the U.S. military plus the kind of the fallout of the U.S. intervention into uh, and the coup, the U.S. backed coup in 1973 uh, during the uh, the murder of Allende. You know, and so I, I parallel these two kind of themes about like, okay, well, this is, you know, the fallouts uh, and this economic system from the U.S. So, yeah, and they're still experiencing the effects of that today, aren't they? Like, it's yeah, exactly. All throughout the and, history of the country, and that, and I will say that there has been a lot of good progress during the 2019 uh, protests. There was an entire um, massive social movement to change the constitution in Chile. Um, because the constitution in Chile up until recently was, um, for 30 years, it was the same constitution as uh, the dictatorship and Pinochet. And so people decided during those protests, like we were going to fight for, you know, massive change and to have a, 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 an all-inclusive constitution that respects the right of indigenous people here in Chile, that, that achieves gender parity, the first constitution that would be written in the world that maintains a 50% uh, woman participation within the constitution. And there have definitely been some very serious grave setbacks about this process. I I don't want to kind of like say that's all rosy and cherry for it, but there were massive, you know, changes during the past couple of years in order to leave, like Chile is often kind of referred to as a democracy in chains. And so we see this process, how to, to leave, these chains and to kind of realize, you know, a, a Chile that has met full democracy. Yeah. Maybe incomplete, but, still, but yeah. It's still undergoing all that change as we speak. So it's not like, mm-hmm. all right, Chile right. just goes on and it's fabulous and democratic and everything. So you're saying is, is there still protests on the street now or is there an undercurrent or what? how would you describe it right now? It's a little bit complicated because I think it's uh, we did have massive changes within this. Actually, the the current um, president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, is one of the student leaders that I came to Chile to research about. He was one of the student leaders from 2011, 12, 13, and Pretty now he's guys. elected. Super yeah, young. Yeah. I mean, he's he's my yeah. age, so he, he's now the president of a country that, like previously, he was you know was protesting mm-hmm. the streets for, and yeah. so. But one thing like I, I worry about is that not only just in Chile or the US or Australia, but all around the world, we're seeing like this reinsurgence of uh, of fascism, um, right-wing fascism that's coordinated to, you know, to bring all the worst parts of humanity out, you know, about attacks mm-hmm. against, um, you know, attacks uh, against uh, the trans community and the LGBTQ community, attacks against um, minorities. And um, and we're seeing this play out all around the world. And we're kind of like seeing this reinsurgence of authoritarianism that's happening all over. And I, I Chile is not immune to this, despite all the massive changes of progress that we've we've experienced over the past couple of years. And yeah. so I, this is also kind of like another theme that I kind of close out on in the Chile book during the, the last like half of it, like, there, there is a real threat of, of of fascism that's rising all around the world, and like how how can young people 
combat this and stop this. And like part of it is also just making sure that people are taken care of. Like people are have access to a good pain, well-dignified life that respects their labor rights, that re respects their education and such. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think a, a lot of countries and this 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 form of neoliberalism um has shown that like people are desperate and people are, are looking for anything to kind of job the system and to mm -hmm. to try to to grab onto like uh, a way to survive and it's only been exacerbated during the pandemic yeah absolutely and i think you of anyone has had such an interesting viewpoint on all of that having lived not only lived in but worked in all of these countries which is which is why i enjoyed your, your book so much Absolutely. So yeah, Rebecca kind of like continuing on with the theme of like uh, about this resurgence of authoritarianism. I know that um, Australia recently had a particular guest from the UK uh, come out to to speak. Um, can you tell me yeah, a little bit about... What's her name? <laughs> what's her name? Posey, Posey Parker. Oh, that's Posey Parker, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've had a few of these over the years and she didn't get the warmest welcome, but it certainly has flushed out a lot of uh, politicians who might be more sympathetic to her yeah. needs and interests. Um, and I know that in New Zealand she got definitely dumped on and they chucked tomato sauce in her and she said, right, everything's cancelled, I'm going. And I tend to think the Aussies should have done something similar, maybe with an right, Australian right. brand name, tomato sauce or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, she's definitely got a, a sympathetic ear in certain parts of Australia and I would say they're absolutely a minority we've got a lot yeah. of very far-right politicians they are in the minority but they do get a lot of airtime so you get the uh -huh. impression that this is kind of a mainstream point of view unfortunately and like all of us yeah. around the world we're we're in this big flashpoint where all of a sudden the transphobes are coming out whereas years ago um, trans people in public were not a problem and now all of a sudden they are according to certain newspapers and that sort of thing so I think we're in that difficult birthing process in the same way that the US is is kind of like mm. well what what do you stand for really do you yeah. do you tolerate transphobia in your workplace or community or in your newspapers or whatever and you know years ago it was LGBTI people and then Years yeah. before that, it was mixed race couples. It's, there's always going to be mm -hmm. something like that for this kind of segment of society. And, and unfortunately, Australia is such that there's there's a few people that have stuck their hooks into certain parts of our society. And and we like to import those things from the States as well, yeah. <laughs> sadly. So, yeah, we, we take to the streets every now and again, but it feels the same as you. Like, yeah, what, what can we do about it? I will I will say something about that. Like it's in, in all countries that I I've lived in, it's um it's definitely it's a theme to see in far right uh, protests that the the U.S. flag is often flown along with um other kind of like I extremist saw, flags. I saw, I saw Trump twenty twenty the other day in the middle of Melbourne. I believe I, it. Uh, <laughs> I just stood there and shouted at them and told them what I thought and moved on my way before I got harassed by the cops or whatever, but it was pretty bad. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Rebecca Stewart, and for Jordan Finn for, for having us. Rebecca, I really hope that you find a huge, huge readership for your work. It's, it's really inspiring stuff as far as being such an engaging story that covers so much about what's happening in the world today, particularly about the the ongoing climate catastrophe. And it needs to have the, the widest audience possible. I think um, I, I feel that like, especially, you know, with the, the UN warning recently about like, we are hitting that tipping point. Um, people need to be aware of this in all their media and especially in, in the comics field. I think people need to be reading your work a lot more. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Eric. And right back at you. Thank you. Thank you very much for um, showing me all the, the copies of your books. Um, I haven't read the third one yet, but I'm just about to. Um, absolutely magnificent storytelling. It's very, very of its time. Uh, it's not just a personal memoir. It's not just uh, straight-up journalism. There's, there's a, a lot of things to think about with your work, and I think I will be pondering them for quite some time. It's provided a lovely spotlight on countries that I may have visited briefly, 
but I've certainly never had the privilege of staying there any long period of time to really understand what was going on. So, um, and I do hope that your book finds a publisher very soon. And if not, I think Let's you should hope. get out there yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Please do, because there's, it's it's a, just a terrific work, 10 years of work um, and a really wonderful story. So thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you to Rebecca and Eric for joining us for this discussion. Rebecca's work can be found at RebeccaLennoxStewart.com and on Instagram at RebeccaLennoxStewart. Eric's work can be found at EricThurmanComics.com and on Twitter at EricThurman. That's Eric spelled with a K. Those links can be found in the episode description, as always. Special thanks to Matt Campbell for composing our music and Patrick Hart for designing our logo. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Creators on Comics Podcast. <laughs>